Our text words this morning are from Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. I will not be giving a full exposition of these verses today, but rather will be giving mainly a doctrinal introduction to how we should understand and interpret the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock of the herd and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offerings and cut it into pieces. The son of, sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. And the priests shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Amen. Let's look to the Lord again in prayer. We praise you, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We praise you, Father, from whom are all things. We praise you, Son, through whom are all things. And we praise you, Spirit, by whom are all things. One holy, life-giving, consubstantial, and undivided Trinity. One true God and our God. We ask you, O Holy Spirit, to illuminate our minds, to behold wondrous things out of your law. May we see Christ with the eyes of faith. To the glory of God the Father, we ask you, and we ask for this to the edification of your saints and the conversion of sinners this very day. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear people of God, what if I told you today that there were a book of Scripture there were a book in the Bible that had nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with your life in Christ. Would you want to read it? Would you be interested in hearing eight Lord's Days in a row of, of sermons preached from a text that has nothing to do with Christ or your life in Christ? Well, sometimes when we come to portions, especially of the Old Covenant law, and specifically Leviticus, We wouldn't say that out loud, perhaps, but can't we view it sometimes that way as we try to read through the book of Leviticus? It might be your experience to think what a couple of different Christian leaders have thought, a couple of different Christian teachers. One of them was listing books of the Bible that are difficult to read, and he said of the book of Leviticus, he said it is by far the hardest book to read because 
It is, quote, filled with boring detail after boring detail, things that seem to have no bearing on my life today. Another Bible teacher put Leviticus as number one of his least favorite books of the Bible. And he said Leviticus Leviticus is number one because, quote, it is packed with laws, rules, and expectations. With patience, there's much insight to discover, yet after a while, my eyes glaze over. That sounds awful, especially coming from Christian leaders, but if we're honest, we, we could probably, I know I could confess that I've thought that way before in coming to the book of Leviticus. And when we think about it this way, we're implying that we think there's little to nothing of Christ and our life in Christ in the book of Leviticus. But today I hope to show you that although if that were true, it would be a tragedy. It's not true. Christ is there. As a Christian, you long for Christ. You want to know of Him. You long to know Him, as Paul said, in the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, and to be made conformable unto His death. You can't get enough of Christ, can you, dear Christian? He's your beloved, just like in the Song of Solomon. The Shulamite woman loved her beloved, and though she failed Him so miserably, even as we have failed God, So many times with our lack of faith and our our lack of ability to see Christ as we should. But yet we love Him. We long for Him because He first loved us. And just like the Shulamite in Song of Solomon 5 and 6, she misses her husband, her lover. Remember how he came to the door in the night to his own house and she was in bed and she wouldn't rise to open the door to him so he went away into the night. She wakes up and her beloved is gone and she's running through the streets of the city. It's one of the most heart-rending accounts in the whole book of Song of Solomon. She's searching for her beloved. I cannot do without him. I must have his fellowship. I must have his communion. That's how we long for Christ and we want to see him. We'd say, sirs, we would see Jesus. And as we open the pages of the book of Leviticus, oh dear Christian, your beloved is there. And there is more than enough of Christ revealed to us in the book of Leviticus to nourish your soul upon Christ. No bearing on my life today. That's what the one writer said, that Leviticus has no bearing on my life today. Jesus didn't think so when he went to quote the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. He quotes from Leviticus. Jesus thought it had bearing on the Christian's life. When the Apostle Peter reminds us of our sanctification and how important it is, and he he says that God says, be holy, for I am holy. He quotes it straight from Leviticus. The Apostle Peter thought, It had much bearing for the Christian life. It has everything to do with our life today according to our Lord Jesus and His apostles. The one writer said, After a while reading Leviticus, my eyes glaze over. Well, by the grace of God, God opens the eyes of our faith to behold Christ in Leviticus rather than our eyes glazing over, rather with the eyes of faith and by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Instead of eyes glazed over, may it be as John, and it will be as John said, that we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We might automatically think, well, 
Isn't the Old Covenant obsolete? Aren't these laws, this, this 27 chapter book full of Old Covenant laws, the book of Leviticus, aren't all these laws obsolete? Isn't that what we read in Hebrews 10, that they were a shadow of good things to come? Isn't that what we read in Hebrews 8.13, where the apostle speaks of the new covenant, and he says that God has made the first obsolete? And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It describes the old covenant, including these laws, as obsolete now that the new covenant has come. It describes it as vanishing away. So what good is it? If it's obsolete, what value is there to it? Well, there's much value. There's great value. In the same way that you ladies, if you, many of you right now, if you look on your hand, you've got not one ring, but two rings on the same finger. You've got your wedding band, but behind that wedding band, you've got another ring, probably with a diamond. That's your engagement ring, and we've had several engagements around here lately, and we praise God for that. Why don't you throw that engagement ring away? It's obsolete. It's been fulfilled. That man committed to you, and he, he asked you to marry him. He promised and committed to marry you, and he gave you that ring as a token of it, as a sign of his commitment. There was a time you were engaged. You weren't married yet. But then that day came when you stood before witnesses and you said, I do, and in covenant you were married, and you put on that other ring, the wedding band, as a token that you are married. You're no longer engaged to him. You're married to him. That wedding band fulfilled the purpose of the engagement ring. But you don't throw it away, do you? You wear it, and you treasure it, and you treasure the memory of how you first came to hear of Him. How He first approached you and revealed truth about Himself to you as you, as you grew to know Him more and grew to love Him more, and you longed to be His bride. You remember that when you look at that engagement ring. You don't toss it aside, but you treasure it. And this is how it is with the Old Covenant law, including Leviticus. Christ didn't just come into the world in the incarnation at Bethlehem with that as the very first revelation of Christ, but no, He came after long revelation and wooing and preaching to His people who He is by the work of His Spirit through His prophets. He had been preaching this message and preparing His people since the dawn of time. And all these Old Covenant Scriptures are precious to us because of that. We would never toss them aside. They witness to us, and they remind us, and they point us to our living Lord and Savior even now. You couldn't fully understand the New Covenant Scriptures without the Old Covenant Scriptures. When John the Baptist saw Jesus... And he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If we didn't have the Old Covenant Scriptures, we'd have no idea what he's talking about. What does he mean, Lamb of God? 
But in portions such as Leviticus, we know exactly what he's talking about. And this lays the framework and the foundation for all that the new covenant says to us. And it heightens and it enhances our understanding of all that Christ has done for us in the new covenant. I remind you today, dear people of God, that the one purpose of the whole Bible, the one purpose is that sinners may be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. It's not a book so we can learn history about the Jewish nation, though it contains the history of the Jewish nation. It is for the purpose of God giving His revelation to reconcile sinners to Himself through Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus can say to the Jews, Search the Scriptures, for they testify of me. Jesus said that in John 5.39. Remember on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, where those two disciples were so disappointed that their Lord, their beloved Lord Jesus, had been crucified and buried, and they were heartbroken. All hope was lost. Remember how Jesus came walking alongside them? They didn't recognize Him at first. And he rebukes them lovingly in Luke 24. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The point of all the Scriptures, no exceptions. The point of all the Old Covenant Scriptures, including Leviticus, is to testify of Christ and to point us to the truths concerning Himself. Our particular Baptist forefathers, as noted by one of our brethren who's done extensive work studying their their writings, But our particular Baptist forefathers held, and Scripture teaches this, that there are three ways that the Old Covenant Scriptures, the Old Covenant Law, points to Jesus Christ. That's its one purpose. It's the one purpose of the book of Leviticus. There are three ways, and we're going to follow those three ways, and I hope to prove it to you from Scripture that this is true. And this is what I hope to prove to you today. That there is so much Christ in the book of Leviticus that the whole purpose of the book is to point you to Christ and your life in Christ. There's so much Christ in Leviticus that the whole purpose of the book is to point you to Christ and your life in Christ. And with this in mind, our theme today is simply this, Behold Christ in Leviticus. And we'll see it in three basic thoughts. First of all, Behold, Christ preserved. Christ preserved. We read in Leviticus 1.1, Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying. And then God begins to speak and to reveal his holy will for these old covenant ceremonies. And almost the entire rest of the book of Leviticus is God speaking And making known his will in this. And in speaking to Moses, God is giving his law to preserve Israel 
who are the ancestors of Christ, and to preserve the Old Covenant document that reveals Christ who is to come. Christ in Leviticus is preserved in His people, the Jewish people, with all of these laws that God is giving to them. One of the purposes of it is to keep them distinct from the pagan nations around them. Have you ever wondered about all the details of the dietary restrictions of all these animals that they're not allowed to eat and things of this nature? And you've wondered what purpose is it for? Part of the immediate purpose was to keep them as a distinct people so they did not become absorbed into the pagan nations until Christ could come, who must come from the tribe of Judah, of the nation of Israel. He is preserving the very ancestors of Christ. So there is Christ preserved in His people. And this is what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 9, tells us of His great burden for the Israelites, from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Christ is preserved in His promises in Leviticus and in the Old Covenant Law. From that first mention of the covenant of grace promised in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman, Christ, will crush the head of the serpent, Satan. And then all of the rest of Scripture is enlarging upon that promise. Leviticus also is contributing to this, as we'll see. The Old Covenant law preserves Christ's promise. And that's what Paul tells us in Romans 9, 4, according, uh, that according to the Israelites, or concerning the Israelites, that to them pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. We would not even have the covenant of grace promised, written and preserved for us if it had not been for God raising up these Levites and priests who were the guardians of the Holy Scriptures, the ones who would copy the Hebrew Scriptures down to us. He's preserving the promises of Christ who would come. And in this, you can imagine in our analogy about the the engagement ring and the wedding ring. That engagement ring is a sign of that, that man's promise and his commitment to his future bride. So as you read the book of Leviticus, remember Christ's promise and commitment to come and to redeem us, and he was faithful in it, and he fulfilled it all. We remember in this that there is a distinction between law and gospel. We firmly uphold the distinction that Law is what we are to do. Gospel is what God has done for us in Christ. But even the law itself and these old covenant law documents, even they preach the gospel of Christ through their types and shadows and the promises that they contain in these law documents. This is why Paul tells us in Romans 3, 2 of the Jews, that unto them were committed the oracles of God. And this is why that Deuteronomy tells us, Deuteronomy 31, 9, that Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi. They were to copy and to preserve it. And in this are included, in this body of 
inspired literature are the promises of the new covenant in Christ. Oh, dear Christian, do you see how far Christ came and all that God did in preparation to redeem you? Do you see how that God preserved an entire people group, the Jewish people, for millennia so that He could bring forth Christ into the world and save you? And do you see His commitment as He comes, as we sang in the psalm this morning, I come in the volume of the book, Your law is within my heart. I come to do your will, O God. And he fulfills this law in your place. He didn't stop. He didn't back out of his commitment. But as he had committed to save all of God's elect, he persevered. And he fulfilled everything that is written of him. This is why Hebrews says of him in Hebrews 13.5, it says of our Lord Jesus... I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's not like the man who promises to marry the young lady and then abandons her and doesn't follow through. But our Lord Jesus followed through and kept His word and fulfilled all the commitments and obligations to save us. Dear saint of God, He'll not stop until He fully redeems you. And this calls us, God calls us in His word to, to love and serve Him out of the overflow of His great faithfulness and commitment to us. Behold Christ in Leviticus. Christ preserved. Preserved in His people and in His promises. Secondly, behold Christ in Leviticus proclaimed. John 5.39, Jesus said, and, and by the way, this is from the old authorized version, our old KJV. It captures the imperative Greek verb there. Jesus tells them, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. If the scriptures testify of Christ, if he expounded the things concerning himself from all the scriptures to the Emmaus Road disciples... We can expect that He is proclaimed in Leviticus. And He is proclaimed throughout the entire Old Covenant law, including this book. And in at least two ways Christ is proclaimed in Leviticus. One way is through types. We read in chapter 1, Leviticus 1.3, concerning the burnt sacrifice and the burnt offering. And then those following verses, that it shall be a male without blemish. This burnt offering itself is a type of Christ. Christ, our sacrifice, who suffered the fiery wrath of God for us at the cross. This burnt offering we read of in Leviticus is a type of Him. And Peter tells us that. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter, he tells us that Christ that you're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We read of this lamb without blemish and spot in Leviticus 1. Christ fulfills that to us. That lamb was a type of Christ. Now what is a type? A type is a person or place or thing or event that is embedded with Special significance. God is the one who gives that thing significance. 
so that in some way it points ahead to the greater reality in Christ. I've told you before, especially children, of that what we could consider as the closest thing to a real-life Millennium Falcon, that, that great spacecraft that you can go and you can visit in Disney World. But if you have the Lego set of the Millennium Falcon, you know something about it already. That Lego set is a type of the real Millennium Falcon. It's in the shape. It's, it shows you something about the color, something about the dimensions of it. That's something of what a type is. It points forward to Christ in a special way. The New Testament tells us of other types of Christ, such as in Romans 5. There, Paul explicitly tells us that Adam is a type of him who was to come. Adam was a type of Christ. We read in 1 Corinthians 10 that in the wilderness the Jews all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. That rock was not literally Christ, but it was typologically Christ. It pointed ahead to Christ our rock from whom we drink the only living water of life. So these types point us to Christ. And every time you hear these words in the book of Leviticus, things like this in, in 5.10, where it tells us that the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin which he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. When you read those things, read it in Christ. This is a promise that comes to you in Christ in typological form reminding you your sins are forgiven you in Him. He is the fulfillment of all of it. But not only are there types of Christ Himself, there are types of your life in Christ as a Christian. We read it in 1 Corinthians 10, in verse 6, where Paul says, Now these things were our examples, is the Greek word type. These were our examples or types to the intent we should not lust after evil things as also they lusted. So Leviticus is not only to point us to Christ Himself, but also our life in Him. What we are to do as His people and how we are to live and what we are to believe. 1 Corinthians 10.11 that we read. Now all these things happened to them as examples in the Greek types. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Think about that. If I asked you who was the book of Leviticus written for? Paul says it was written for us as New Covenant Christians. It was written for our admonition. The crossing of the ages has come. We live in the overlap of this age and the age to come and the coming glory in Christ that's been inaugurated. And he says the book of Leviticus was written for you that live in this New Covenant age. Not only does Leviticus proclaim Christ through types, but it also proclaims Him through a more basic category, and that is signs. A lot of times in today's Reformed world, when we think about Christ in the Old Testament, you mention Christ in the Old Testament, people automatically think, okay, types and typology, full stop. That's, that's all there is besides the specific promises. You have types, and then that's all that there is of Christ in the Old Testament. But I tell you, dear believers, there's more than just types of Christ. There's a category called sign. A sign is more basic. Not every type is a, or, or 
Not every sign is a type, but every type is a sign, Benjamin Keach, one of our particular Baptist forefathers, tells us. A sign is anything that points beyond itself to the thing signified. It points to something else. And in this way, even words are signs. And so as you think, well, where is Christ in Leviticus? Okay, think of like the, the, the Day of Atonement. Think of the high priest. Oh, there's a type of Christ, but there's much more of Christ than that in the book of Leviticus. What if you run across something that's not a type of Christ? Like the leper, the man who has leprosy, and it tells the ceremonies of what to do with him. That leper, that man that has that skin disease that's, that's killing him slowly, that leper's not a type of Christ. But he is a sign pointing to Christ because it shows us of our spiritual leprosy of sin and how that because of this death has entered into the world and that we desperately need the miraculous spiritual healing that God in Christ gives us, God gives us through our high priest Jesus Christ. So in that way, even many things which are not types yet are signs of Christ and we confess this In our confession of faith in chapter 8, paragraph 6, that Christ was made known to the Old Testament saints. It's reminding us they were saved in the same way we're saved, by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. And it tells us concerning this, that Christ was made known to the Old Testament saints by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein He was revealed and signified. When you see the term signified, see that first part of the word sign, signified. Christ is signified. And in this way, if you want to ask, well, where is Christ in Leviticus? Everywhere. If not in type, in sign. He is proclaimed. You can think of it in the wedding and engagement ring analogy. That that ring on your finger... You who are brides, that ring is not a type of your husband, or if it's an engagement ring, it's not a type of your fiancé, but it is a sign of a husband or a fiancé. If a man sees that ring on your finger, he sees that man in his mind because that ring is a sign of the man. And in this way, everything we read in Holy Scripture, including the Old Covenant Scriptures, are signs to point us to Christ. He stands behind them all, and He is the ultimate purpose and the ultimate fulfillment of them all. Well, we could ask, how much Christ is there in the Old Testament Scriptures? In these Old Covenant documents, just how much Christ is there in them? Well, there's so much Christ in the Old Testament that Jesus could tell the Jews, search the Scriptures, for they testify of Me. There's so much Christ in the Old Testament that Jesus could tell the Emmaus Road disciples that He could expound from all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. There's so much Christ in the Old Testament that the apostles in the book of Acts said to Him, give all the prophets witness, not some of the prophets, even the most obscure prophets, even the prophet Obadiah and others who have no messianic prophecy, who have no mention of the name of 
Emmanuel to come. Every one of them in their own way points to Christ. There's so much Christ in the Old Testament that these Old Testament scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. From a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures. And he's speaking of the Old Testament. And they're able to make you wise unto salvation. That's how much Christ there is in the Old Testament. And Leviticus is no exception. There's plenty here to nourish your soul on Christ, dear believer. Your beloved is here. And I encourage you as a Christian in beholding Christ in Leviticus. Let this make you desire Him more and more. You see the death and the bloodshed and the suffering of these animals who had to die in the place of the guilty sinner. Think of His sufferings for you. When you see the service of the priest and how that their whole life depended upon the success of that priest, whether he successfully offered on their behalf or not, let it show you your need of Christ and remind you of Him and let it make you desire Him and love Him more and more. Just like as a bride would look back at that engagement ring next to that wedding band and remember his commitment and remember your first love. And when you first fell in love, as we look at the book of Leviticus, let it remind you of Christ and how he first made himself known to you. And how you first began to fall in love with him when you were converted and let it stir up your desire for him. The fact that Christ is proclaimed in the book of Leviticus reproves modern interpretations of Scripture that would deny this. There are people today who would tell us of the Old Testament, well, we don't want to see Christ where He's not. We don't want to find Christ under every rock and tree. Well, we don't have to find Him under a rock because Paul said He is that rock. We don't have to find Him under every tree because Paul said, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that cursed one in the Old Testament who hanged on the tree is a type and a, a sign pointing to Christ who would hang on the cross for us. And if the whole purpose of the Old Testament is to point to Christ, if everything there is either a type or a sign or a promise pointing to Christ, there's no danger of finding Him where He's not. We agree with the Puritan Thomas Adams who said Christ is the sum of the whole Bible, prophesied, typified, prefigured, exhibited, demonstrated. He's found in every page, almost in every line, the Scriptures being but as it were the swaddling bands of the child Jesus. We agree with our Lord Jesus who said, search the Scriptures for they testify of me. We agree and we confess what our particular Baptist forefather, Nehemiah Cox, reminds us of, that God caused this light gradually to increase. The Old Testament light is like a dimmer switch. God didn't flip the light switch all at once on bright, but He gradually raised the intensity of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says God caused the light gradually to increase until the whole mystery of His grace was perfectly revealed in and by Jesus Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he reminds us that all of human history is leading to Christ coming into the world. All of redemptive history, all of Scripture, every line, every word, every historical event... Everything 
is leading to this one purpose for Christ to come into the world to save God's elect and reconcile them to God. And Nehemiah Cox reminds us based on this, so in all our search after the mind of God and the Holy Scriptures, we are to manage our inquiries with reference to Christ. We are not reading Christ into the Old Covenant Scriptures. You can't do that because He's already there. We're seeing Him there as He is. And by the grace of God, by the help of God, and the work of His Spirit through the preached Word, may you behold Him in a way that you have not been able to on your own, dear Christian. This is why God gives the preached ministry of the Word and gives gifted men to the church to help you, as Thomas Watson said, That preaching of the Word is like beating a bag of potpourri. It makes the fragrance fill the room. It's it's like taking a fire and, and pumping the bellows where that oxygen makes that fire burn all the brighter. Don't feel guilty. Don't beat yourself up if you haven't seen a lot of Christ in the book of Leviticus. Maybe it's because you haven't heard a series preached on it. We need the preaching of the Word to open our eyes to the depths of the truth of the Word. But Christ is there, and this reproves modern interpretations who would say otherwise. And it reproves us as Christians, just like the Emmaus Road disciples, whom Jesus said were so foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. When God opens our eyes and we see the beauties and glories of Christ in a way that we haven't before, one of the first things we need to do is to repent of our dullness of heart, to repent of our lack of faith, and to ask God, oh, open my eyes to behold Christ in this book and in all of the Old Covenant. And may it be as their experience was on the road to Emmaus. When they were talking later, they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while He talked with us on the road, while He opened the Scriptures to us? Oh, Christian, may your heart burn within you with love for Christ, with with amazement of what God has done for you in the life unto death, obedience of Christ in His death and resurrection and the work of His Spirit in you. Oh, may Christ speak to us, and He does speak to us now through the preached Word. Just as with them may cause our hearts to burn within us. Oh, dear sinner, not one day in your life have you desired Christ. Oh, He's so glorious. He's so wonderful. He's such a wonderful Savior. He's the burnt offering typified in this book where instead of you having to go to hell and burn forever that sacrifice, our Lord Jesus was burned up for you, as it were, on the cross of Calvary. Just like this animal that we read about, Leviticus 1, they would slit its throat and bleed it out and they would burn it up on the altar. That animal is blameless. It didn't deserve to die, but it dies on behalf of the guilty, oh, guilty sinner, Christ died for guilty sinners. Do you see how wonderful a salvation this is? That you can go free. You can have life. You can have His very righteousness given unto you. You can have Him as your substitute who at the cross was offered up for you. He offered up Himself for us. He ever lives as the great high priest to make intercession for you. Do you see how glorious? Do you see what a wonderful Savior? And yet, not one day yet in your life have you truly desired Him or have you beheld Him with the eyes of faith. Oh, may God open your eyes 
You keep going back to your sin. You love your sin. You see glory in sin. You see desire in sin. You desire it. It's desirable. It's beautiful to you. That hideous and ugly and horrible sin that you live in. And you have no eye for Christ. But oh, may God open your eyes. One glimpse of the beauty of Christ. And you will come to Him willingly in the day of His power. Come to Him. Come to Him, old sinner. Christ is revealed in Leviticus, and we behold Christ in Leviticus. Christ preserved. Christ proclaimed through types and signs. Third and lastly, behold Christ in Leviticus. Christ desired. We've seen Him preserved, proclaimed, and now Christ desired. This speaks to the second use of the law. The second use of the law is to show you your sin. It's like a mirror where you're, you're walking around, you think, you think you look fine, and then you look in the mirror and, oh, I've had a stain right there on my face this whole time. I didn't even know it. The mirror reveals to you your blemishes. The mirror of the law of God reveals to you your sin guilt. And that's what Paul teaches us in Galatians 3. This is one of the purposes that the law was given. He says, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor or schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. James, the apostle, likens it to a mirror to show us our sin. And as we study the old covenant law and the enduring moral precepts of it, because the The moral principle behind it still endures, even if the details of many of these laws don't endure. The moral principle does endure. And as we look into the mirror of the Word, may it make us desire Christ in at least two ways. Just as it would have made Old Covenant believers desire Christ as they awaited His coming. May we desire Him as our substitute. As we see, as it were, the walls, the halls of Leviticus painted red with blood, the blood of sacrifices, and it reminds us the horrible cost of sin, that blood must be shed. There must be an atoning sacrifice for sin as we see that, and as we see the infinite stream of sacrificial animal after animal after animal. There's no end to it. There's no end in sight. There is no finishing it by the blood of these animals. We saw that in Hebrews 10. May it make us long for Christ and remember the glory of the gospel of Christ who once for all paid for our sins and is set down at the right hand of the Father. May we desire Christ as our substitute and remember the great price it took to redeem us. And as the law reveals our filthy, ugly rags of sin, may it make us desire, may it make you desire, dear sinner, to be freed of those rags of sin and be clothed by the perfect righteousness of Christ. And you have been clothed by that righteousness, dear saint. The law is like salt that makes us thirsty for Christ. And oh, may we thirst for Him and look to Him by faith. My dad tells of when he was a boy and he had a he had a horse and he would take that horse and lead it down to Green River there in North Carolina down to the river next to the property the edge of the property and water that horse every day and he said he went to water the horse and the horse wouldn't budge 
It wouldn't go with him to the river. It just sat there. So he got tired of fighting with it. He just left it alone. He went and got a salt block and put a salt block in the horse's pasture. And for several days, that horse licked on that salt block and didn't have any water. And next time Dad went down there to lead that horse to the water, he said it drug him to the water. As soon as the gate opened, the horse was running as fast as it could down there to the river and drank and drank and drank of that water. Oh, dear sinner, you just sit there and you hear the gospel and you don't come to Christ because you have not licked on the salt block of the holy law of God and you've not become thirsty by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Oh, may God make you thirsty for Christ and may you come to Him. Him who is the only living water of life. And as we as Christians read it, may it remind us of our great need of Him. Just as Christ is proclaimed in Leviticus as a substitute for guilty sinners, O sinner, take Him as your substitute. O believer, remember He is your substitute. You stand accepted before God in Him. Dear sinner, when you hear the benefits and the, the glories of this salvation in Christ, don't you long for it? Don't you desire to know what it's like to lay your head down at night and not be scared to death? You're going to wake up in hell. Don't you long to know what it's like to be reconciled and to know that you're reconciled with God, that you're right with God, that you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, come to Him. He's the substitute for sinners. He's not just a substitute, but we desire Him in the book of Leviticus as our example. As we see people and priests who failed miserably, it makes us long for a perfect priest who never fails. It makes us long to be people that never fail and never sin, and that is exactly what we will be in glory, even though we sin and fail miserably now. Our Lord Jesus, that perfect and great high priest, who's entered in beyond the veil, who's suffered and entered into His glory, He's leading us as His people to enter into that same glory. That's why Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.21 that Christ is our example that we should follow in His steps. He's not only our substitute in our justification and pardon, but He is our example in our sanctification. And we'll see that in Leviticus. And I remind you that as we look into the law in Christ, dear Christian, the law is not to hurt you, but only to help you. You know, you can have some really bad experiences looking into a mirror. It doesn't flatter you, it just tells you what's there. I remember one time as a teenager standing with a friend of mine who just loved to, to make fun and mock and he was pointing out as we stood in front of the mirror just flaws and blemishes and the pure reason of looking into that mirror and talking to me about what was in the mirror in my reflection was to mock and to scorn. That's not why God gives His law, dear believer. It's more like another experience I had many years later. A 
dear friend, uh, Dr. Rick, as he stood with me in front of that big mirror in his office, my first visit to him, and he began to point out, do you see structural crookedness? Have you been in a severe accident? And I told him that I had, and he showed me how it had twisted and deformed my stance and things of that nature and things to do to work on it, things to do to improve. Just imagine as a believer, as you look into the law, the holy law of God as your mirror, and you see the deformities, you see the twistedness that still describes you by sin because of your sins. Christ stands there with you in that mirror, not to humiliate, not to mock and to scorn, but to help you. Look at it that way. This is the third use of the law to you, dear Christian. And remember the future glory as we look into this law, future glory when if you were to look into a spiritual mirror to see yourself, there would be no blemish, no deformity, but only perfect Christ-like radiance forever, perfect sinlessness. This is your future in Christ. This is what you're headed for. And now by the grace of God, look boldly into this mirror with Christ and see your sinful deformities and repent and be sanctified by His grace and follow his directions and his example that we'll see in the book of Leviticus. You remember the Shulamite losing her beloved's presence and fellowship, the experience of his fellowship. And we never lose our communion with Christ, our union with Christ, but we can lose the joy, as David said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. But that Shulamite, as she was running through the street, she was distressed, crying out, trying to find her beloved. In chapter 6, she says, it, it dawns on her, she remembers, my beloved has gone down to his garden. She knew exactly where to find him. He was there. And oh, as we go into the book of Leviticus, dear Christian, it is a, it is a garden of delights where Christ is. Your beloved is there. I invite you to come with me to behold Him, to feast upon Him, commune with Him. And I invite you, old dear sinner, to come to Him, even this day, this wonderful, beloved Savior, and find rest. Amen.